Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here. You're with Talk TV on TV, on radio, online and on your smart speaker. Now coming up, Prince Harry expresses a keen interest in moving back to London to get his old life back, leaving Meghan Markle frustrated. Uh, more migrants are spotted crossing the channel as the total number of arrivals this year reportedly passes the 25,000 mark. And Prime Minister Rishi Sunak condemns the cost of HS2, argue it's escalated far beyond its initial budget and the sums involved are now enormous. Brilliant. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV. We are with you all the way through uh, until one o'clock. And I'm going to ask you for something special today because what I want from you uh, are your stories because that's what we're all about. We need to know from you what exactly is going on up and down the length and the breadth of the country. A couple of things have occurred to me today. The first was what happened yesterday. Uh, sec secondly, uh, what happened to me yesterday. I walked into a shopping centre, my local shopping centre, which is frequented by all manner of people, uh, people from all over the world, you might say, because it's in a part of south-east London, uh, which is pretty populous. Uh, it's pretty well acquainted with all sorts of people, from yuppies who go and work in Canary Wharf in the financial district to people who have just recently come to live here from another country. Uh, there's all kinds of, you know, cool shops there. There's all kinds of interesting things to do. I walked into this shopping centre yesterday to be greeted with a scene that I'm sure many of you see on a daily basis, and it was a fight, basically. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon, and there were three security guards attempting to basically arrest and detain a young man um, who was very quick, uh, who was very supple, um, and who was very dangerous by the looks of him. Um, he looked as though uh, he may have come here recently from another land as well. I don't know. It's very difficult to tell. But there was a fight going on, basically. They were trying to stop him from running out of the door, the revolving door, with a load of stuff holding, uh, he was holding in his arms. He seems to have gone into the local supermarket, which is one of those uh, big Tesco's, effectively, um, and basically just run out with stuff. Now, I wasn't expecting to see what I saw, because what I didn't know was that security guards are now actually sometimes taking it upon themselves to do things about people doing shoplifting, because what we've heard over the course of the last few weeks is that if you work in a shop, it's actually becoming quite dangerous now, and you don't want to stop the shoplifters because you never know what they're going to do. Well, this guy was punching his way, kicking his way out of their grasp. He was trying to get away from them. They were trying to hold on to him. At one point, he did escape their grasp, and he still had stuff that he was carrying. One of them managed to trip him up and he fell straight down on, his, on the floor. There were people standing all around, including mothers with children who had just come out of school. People were filming it. People were standing sort of aghast with their mouths open. I sort of walked past this scene um, as I was literally walking in to put some shirts in the dry cleaners. Um, and I didn't really want to just stand and stare, but eventually I got past the, what was going on. 
turned around and watched as the, uh, the three security guards, who were obviously pretty handy themselves with their fists, were, were punching this guy, kicking him, uh, trying to get the stuff off him. Eventually, they did get all the stuff off him, and he ran away. Basically, there was no sign of the police. They kind of looked reasonably happy with their work for the day. There was a couple of other guys standing around in, you know, security uniforms as well, and they took the stuff back inside to the shop where he had stolen it from. And clearly, it, it all happened quite quickly. But I want to hear from you today as to what you're seeing out there in terms of what we call lawless Britain, because you're probably seeing something similar to me every single day. We've said before, Britain's streets have become very much more dangerous than they used to be. You know, we now know that people are shoplifting at a rate of knots the way that they never used to. Um, so I want to hear what, you, what you're seeing out there. 0344 499 1000. You can text us as well uh, to 87222 uh, and just put the word talk at the front of it. And, and you can also at us uh, on Twitter or X, whatever you wish to call it, at Talk TV and at IROMG. The bottom line for me, though, um, is that not only did I witness this particular incident yesterday, but also yesterday, while this show was on, we broke the news to you, I think it was in the last hour, that a 16-year-old kid had been stabbed to death uh, outside of a house in North London in a place called Edmonton, not a million miles away from where I was raised in North London. And it marked the 17th teenage death by stabbing in this capital city just since the beginning of the year. 17 teenagers lying dead in a mortuary, in a morgue, with parents grieving because they've been stabbed to death by someone with a knife. Now, you can say whatever you want about uh, the, the stabbing deaths of people in every other part of the world. We're always banging on about gun deaths in America and how, isn't it incredible that nobody does anything about it? Well, how can we have 17 teenagers lying dead in this country because they've been stabbed in the capital city, one of the richest cities in the world? What is going on? And even more surprisingly, is that in all of the papers this morning I've looked at, I can't find a word about it. I know that people got very worked up last week about the death of the young girl um, in Croydon, who was only 15 and was stabbed to death as she was on her way to school, because that was particularly horrendous, particularly awful. But was it more awful? Was it more awful than something else that's been going on? Is it more awful, um, basically, than what happened last week? Uh, is it more awful than what happened this week? Why is it that one story gets an awful lot of attention and another one doesn't? I mean, I see nothing really this morning in the papers. I've looked through most of them uh, about the stabbing death of this 16-year-old. I find it extraordinary, absolutely incredible that nobody is writing about it. You know, have we become so inured to death? Have we become so, you know, vapid about violence that actually we don't really think it's news anymore? It was only a week ago. It was massive news. This week, it's not. And I'm not having to go at the newspapers. I used to work in newspapers, as you know. I'm a newspaper man through and through to my blood. But I find it astonishing that this kind of activity is now going on on a weekly basis. Somebody is getting stabbed to death. That's two people in just over a week. Both of them teenagers, 15-year-old, 16-year-old. There is another murder inquiry going on. Uh, in Croydon, there's a murder investigation going on. Somebody's been charged. But it does seem to me that Britain, while the Tory party may be having its annual conference up there in Manchester and while they're talking about HS2 and while they're talking about taxes and while they're talking about, you know, migrants and stopping boats, they're not really talking about crime. And I don't know why, because I think the problem with crime is that it inveigles its way into everybody's life. If you live in a lawless society, you don't feel safe. 
You don't know whether your car's going to get stolen if you park it on a particular street. You don't know whether your wife is going to be you know, kidnapped and raped at some point. You don't know whether your husband is going to be stabbed or punched if he's out for a drink in the pub. You don't know whether your children are likely to be somehow attacked while they're out by other school children. You don't know whether your son, if you've got one, you don't know whether your son is going to come home because he might get stabbed on the way. We can't be dealing with this, ladies and gentlemen. We need to do something about it. And so I'd love to hear from you today. 0344 499 1000. We'll dedicate this show um, to your calls because at the end of the day, if we don't do something about it, if we don't make the powers that be understand that we care about this, then it's never going to be dealt with. Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, pays kind of lip service to it and talks about how awful it is, but does he do anything about it? Does he increase the stop and search? Does he make it possible for people who carry knives to go to jail? He doesn't, does he? So let's do something about it and let's share some stories this morning. Uh, you know what to do. Now, let's talk about Prince Harry because uh, we've awoken to more trouble in Montecito. Apparently, Harry's homesick and Ms Markle is a bit frustrated with her prince. That's what we're told. Joining me now to discuss that and much, much more is Senior Fellow at the New Culture Forum, Rafe Heidel-Mancou. Rafe, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the brand new spanking new studio at the Independent Republic. Yes, and apologies, my uh, my laptop has, has failed on me, so I can't even see your studios. <laughs> I'm on the phone here. Apologies. My goodness <laughs> me, that's a shocking state of affairs. Well, listen, let's talk about uh, the homesick prince, first of all. We can see uh, footage as we speak of him uh, with um, uh, Meghan Markle talking to various people on a, a trip abroad. He's there with the umbrella underneath the flashlights of, uh, of, of the world's cameras. You know, I mean, we always knew that there was going to be some point at which these two probably had to reconsider what they were going to do with their lives and where they were going to go with everything. Um, is this that point, do you think? Yeah, well, you know, gosh, who could have thought that a life of self-absorbed, you know, narcissism, meditating and sipping chai all day long with uh, an vacuous Hollywood airheads wouldn't be quite as fulfilling as you would have thought. So, um, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember... Uh, Prince Harry is not born to the Hollywood sort of world. His his upbringing was very much one of responsibility and duty mm. and service, as we saw in the army. And yeah, and of course, we now realise that Meghan is actually the one who is in the driving seat. And this has been very much for the last year all about advancing Meghan's own agenda and Meghan's plan. Prince Harry was the, the ladder upon which uh, she could climb to the summit that she's now reached. And uh, it's now Prince Harry's time to to support her in her career. Um, but of course, we know that it's only natural that a man of, of, like Harry is going to be uh, homesick for his friends who give him that sort of balance that he's always needed in his life. And he doesn't have that balance anymore. Um, you know, he doesn't even have a home in London, unfortunately, any longer. And he seems to have distanced himself from his friends. And it seems uh, entirely natural that, you know, after this period of uh, distancing himself from his family, that there is some sort of a compromise that's met, that's made. We know, for example, now that the that he's reached out to his uncle, uh, Prince Edward, the Duke of Edinburgh and the Duchess of Edinburgh. So that's one olive branch that has been extended, uh, albeit to a more minor member of the royal family. But it seems as if he is looking across the, the Atlantic more wistfully than before. 
Well, do you wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that they do appear to some extent to have run out of road? I mean, he took part in the Invictus Games, which he uh, has, has kind of branded as, as his own event, which people give him a lot of credit for and people seem to think is a good thing. Um, but, you know, we, we hear this morning from the chief executive of Spotify that basically the, the podcasts that they paid millions and millions of dollars for were not a success because basically people didn't like them and they weren't very entertaining and they weren't very interesting. And so at the end of the day, surely um, if if you can't make money from places like Spotify and Netflix, you have to find another way to make yourself relevant. And it's all very well doing self-help sort of seminars and turning up at various kind of uh, think tanks to discuss, you know, mindfulness and all of that. But it's already a very overcrowded field. And, you know, I think a lot of people in America have kind of taken against Harry and Meghan now. Um, after we saw the, the South Park sort of, um, you know, fun-making at their expense, they seem to have become rather a sort of comic... A, fit couple, a sort of comic couple, if you like, you know, people for whom people don't really see the, uh, themselves and people who don't look up to them. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, once, once, you, once you are made fun of by uh, late-night American talk shows and by, by South Park, it's pretty much game over for any attempt to try to put, pass yourself off as being a serious a serious individual, talent rises to the top and the talented people who are involved in the self-help industry are dominating the industry because they have the necessary skills, the charisma, the, uh, the ability to speak well and to captivate an audience and you know the subject fully well. Harry and Meghan have never demonstrated any expertise in any field other than that of grievance and victimhood. And the great problem here, of course, is that their entire raison d'etre has been their proximity to the royal family and their ability to dish the dirt and uh, open, open cupboards and bring out skeletons. And unfortunately for them, the, the, the greater the distance between them and the royal family, the uh, more that their star begins to fade. And of course, we've seen the royal family very clearly closing doors, uh, drawing up the drawbridge and refusing to engage with them mm -hmm. on their terms. And as a result of that, of course, there's become less and less reason for the public to have any interest in them whatsoever. And of course, Netflix and Harry and Meghan were very disappointed about the viewing figures that uh, Heart of Invictus, their recent documentary, has produced. And why was that? Because, of course, people are only interested in Harry and Meghan for one thing, and that's their proximity to the royal family. And that's no longer there. No, and that is going to be a problem. And what about all of the deals that they've struck, though? Because she's got books to write, supposedly. She's got contracts to fulfil. Um, uh, there's talk that she might be interested in getting into politics, although uh, the suggested role for her as uh, the following uh, on from Diane Feinstein apparently isn't likely to happen because I think there's already somebody in the frame for that. Um, but they've got obligations that they have to fulfil still, I think, while they're in the US of A. So, I mean, I'm not even sure he can leave, can he? Well, I mean, the thing is, we know that um, Megan is supposed to be writing uh, memoirs of her own, um, so that that potentially does provide one one opportunity for them to actually make another big splash. Harry's touted the idea of uh, of uh, some sequel to his memoirs, Spared Two. We can't mm. wait, I'm sure, for that, which promises more revelations. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is, of course, any deal that they have now, people will look at things like Heart of Invictus. And they all say, look, Harry and Meghan, the only products that consumers really want is when you're actually talking about the royalty and nothing else will work. And that's going to, of course, paint them into a corner and will be a source of huge frustration from them as they try to, you know, branch out and uh, pursue interests that they want, they want to pursue. No one's interested. Yeah. And so there's going to be a big reckoning. And I don't know what the escape clauses are 
on these contracts, either on their side or on the part of the companies. But I think they'll be looking at those closely. Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, if they're not any longer the goose that lays the golden egg um, and it's all kind of running out of, of, of road, if you like, um, I don't even know what he would do if he came back here because it would be even more obvious if he did come back to this country, actually, that there would be no role for him. He couldn't ask to be re-entered into the sort of royal family rota because his father's made it very clear, I think, that, you know, there literally isn't anywhere for him to go. I think his father's made it very clear for him, to him as well. If he wants to come back uh, at any point, he has to ask permission to even stay anywhere near that, the, the, the sort of the royal seat, as it were, in Windsor. So I'm not sure how he would reconnect with Britain if he did come back. Yes, and remember, this is this is a couple that lead a life of idleness. We don't see much of it because they're in California, but we know from their tax returns for for Archwell Company that uh, they work for one one hour per week. Um, I'm just reminded, you know, of a story that the uh, the hairdresser to the Duchess of Windsor said when the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were uh, living in uh, exile in France in a villa. He was doing the Duchess's hair one day, and he looked out of the window and he saw the Duke of Windsor formerly King Edward VIII, trying to get five or six pug dogs to listen to him. And they were barking and running around. And he thought, how sad. This was the king and emperor of the biggest empire the world's ever seen. He can't even get his pug dogs to follow him. And there's a degree of that in Prince Harry, a man who commanded the adoration of the nation and the Commonwealth, who had a great role to fulfill, now left working one hour a week and just meditating and introspecting in California. Yeah. I know. It is a kind of a sad story, but a, a, a very interesting tale of woe, uh, which tells you an awful lot about family life and about what you should do and maybe what you shouldn't do. Rafe, thanks very much indeed. Good to talk to you. Uh, Rafe hadel Maku there from the uh, New Culture Forum uh, talking about the strange news that Prince Harry might want to come back after all of, and after everything that's happened. Amazing. <laughs> Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk TV. A murder probe has been launched after a 16-year-old boy was stabbed to death in London yesterday. This follows a spate of stabbings and a rise in shoplifting across the country. And it begs the question, just how lawless has Britain become? And it's a question that a lot of people are asking. So let's try and explore it, right? I'm going to speak now to Steve Hartshaw, who is chair of the Police Federation, and also former Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner... Kevin Hurley. Um, Kevin uh, and Steve, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I think one of the things that I suppose um, grabbed me about this, this story broke yesterday uh, when I was doing this show uh, just before midday that a boy of 16 had been stabbed to death in Edmonton, making him the 17th victim, uh, teenage victim of stabbing deaths in the capital city this year alone, which is, you know, an incredibly high number. Let me come to you first, Steve. Um, because the thing that strikes me about this particular story is that there's not hardly a word of it in the papers. I'm looking through the papers this morning. And obviously we had the horrible stabbing last week in Croydon of the young girl who was on her way to school. But hardly anybody's covered this story. It's almost as though we're so used to it now that it's not news anymore. I quite agree. Good morning. It's almost as if people have been desensitised to a horrendous crime spate that appears to be taking place across the country. Mm. And the politics gets more of a headline, which is very sad because you could liken it to it's a bit like a health you know, pandemic, we need more police officers out there on the streets to stop protecting the public. But we also need to be working more with the public to get information so we can try and prevent these crimes taking place in the first place. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and Kevin, I mean, let me come to you about the knife crime problem. Um, clearly, there's more kids carrying knives. There's clearly more stabbings going on. I mean, I hear all the time when I listen to this station um, and, and, and I watch other, other shows as well. You know, there's an awful lot of it going on. 
What do you think is, is the cause of this sort of huge increase in the numbers of kids carrying knives? Well, let me give you a couple of statistics, then I'll give you the answer. Yeah. In 2008 in London, there were 29 youth murders. By 2012, there were only eight. So that is effectively about 100 less kids murdered and probably two or 300 less uh, who've got life imprisonment for joint enterprise murder. What has changed since that date is the continual attack on the morale of street police officers, the actual people who are required to go out there and patrol, but more important, to be nosy, go and face confrontation and do stop and search. For a police officer in the cities or anywhere in the country, stopping and searching is a no-win situation. They know that they're going to face a confrontation, possibly assaulted, possibly complaints, possibly worse, even be disciplined. So what you've seen is a withdrawal of what I would call discretionary goodwill among street police officers to go out there and, as we called it, because the reason I say this, I ran Operation Blunt 2 for London that produced that statistic, put hands in pockets. We've now got a police service that has been effectively sliced in half, probably, in terms of its effect ability to be proactive. The actual patrol ships are filled with very inexperienced, newly trained officers with no one to show them what to do. And at the other end, if you like, of the spectrum, is experienced officers are hemorrhaging out well before pension because of the pay conditions. But more important, the lack of support and criticism. So we've got Mayor Khan, for example, in London coming in saying, I'm going to stop, stop and search and deal with it. Police are being racist. Then in an act of despair saying we need to do more. Well, unfortunately, police officers are not silly. They know they're going to be hung out to dry. And I won't talk about the latest case of an officer charged with murder. But there are other cases where officers are effectively being thrown under the bus for split-second Yeah, but Kevin, decisions. hang on. You, you, I mean, I'm, take, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying, and, and you're telling me all about the state of the police, but what you're not answering is why so many kids are carrying knives. So I'm going to let um, Steve have no a go. Deterrent. Well, no deterrent. Well, hang on. Yeah, but, but that's not no the same deterrent. thing. Yeah, all right, that's your view. Steve, is that thing. right? It's the same it's, thing. Well, it isn't. I don't think it is, because surely these kids if have you're got not parents. Caught. Yeah, all right, Kevin, hang caught. on a sec. Hang on a sec. Let me go to Steve. Steve, surely there's a breakdown here somewhere else going on, because it's not just about the fact that there's no police. It's the fact that there's people who have got children who they must know are carrying knives, and they're happy for them to do so. Mark, I, I wish I had the right answer to your question, because it's a very important question. But you're right, it's not just about police officers, it's about the wider community. For me, this goes right back to when kids should be offered a, a place at a nursery school, but edu being educated properly, getting their mental health, getting their physical health dealt with properly, giving them an alternative to going out and committing crime. We need diversionary tactics put in place. We need youth clubs back so we can help kids. I've never accepted that poverty is a precursor to anybody getting into crime. I think that's a, a misnomer. I think if you give particularly children a way out of, of impoverished areas, sometimes who would that might lead into criminality, that's a big diversion. You look at the prison population now, young males involved in, in high levels of crime because they're not being educated properly. So it's not just a policing problem, it's a wider problem for the entire society to deal with. Yeah. We need to treat it as, as very, very urgent. Otherwise, we're going to lose generations of kids to the future. Yeah.
Exactly right. Kevin, and let me come back to you on this, right? You know, I understand what you're saying, and that may well be a part of it, but we've also, you know, I, I, you, you look as if you might even be as old as I am. I lived through the 1970s. There was plenty of poverty in the 1970s. We weren't going around stabbing each other to death. There's a new thing going on. I'm, what I, I suppose I'm going to put to you is I think social media has a role to play in this. I think parents have a role to play in it. Uh, and possibly, you know, not so much de deprivation as a kind of sense of entitlement, that these kids are walking around with very expensive shoes, they're walking around with very expensive phones, you know, they don't want for very much, and yet we've got a more violent epidemic of teenagers now, I think, than we've ever had. You are correct, and Steve is correct. You know, bottom line, everybody's got to play into this game in terms of what Steve said about diversion and so on. But there's a crisis right now that needs action on, and Mike, one thing that we should bear in mind is that the Offensive Weapons Act 1958 was brought in because large numbers of stabbings on the streets of the United Kingdom. So young people carrying knives has always been an issue. The point I'm making is at this moment in time where it's out of control, you need a significant deterrent effect. And that means people need to know that they're going to be stopped, they're going to be found with a weapon, and they're going to get a... a a really meaningful sentence, i.e. a custodial. And at the current time, because the prisons are full, because of the system we have now of youth courts diverting people from the criminal justice system, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids know there's no deterrent. And you are right, Mike. There's no question of it. This drill music has had a big effect. Social media uh, has carried it. And Steve, again, is equally right that you've got to get upstream of the problem when kids are three, four, with single parenting. Because one of the issues that people forget about much of this knife crime is a large number of the kids involved in it, or even some of the tragic victims, are in fact from single parent families where the, the male guidance may well be absent. So it's a collective, but the immediate solution now is to reinvigorate, re-empower, get behind and support the police, which is a, a monstrous job. I mean, I really don't know how you can rebuild the morale of the police now so that individual officers are going to think it's worth their while doing stop and search. And I say that having come from a family of nine metropolitan police officers, six of which were all on street and robbery squads, crime squads, who were very much proactive putting their hands in pockets. The latest one has resigned halfway through uh, their career. And I just look at it and I think it's not worth their while getting out there and getting stuck in. So we're left with the impact of the slashing cuts on the police, inexperienced officers, inexperienced sergeants and inspectors trying to tell them how to go about it, or even constables. It's a disastrous situation, but it needs to start with rebuilding the morale and motivation of the police, because they are the ones who create the deterrent, combined with, we need more prison space. This is an unpopular thing to say, but you need more prison space, and we need to rebuild the courts so that people can immediately go through the courts I instead know. of waiting for I two know. years before justice. In short, there's no deterrent. That's why people shoplift everywhere.
That's right. So yeah. lawless. Well, listen, um, I'm going to I'm going to go back uh, to, to, to to you guys as well because I started the show, uh, Steve, with this story of yesterday. I walked into um, Surrey Quay Shopping Centre, which you both may know, South East London, and there was a massive bundle going on because a shoplifter was being tackled, and I was quite surprised to see it. At first, I thought they were police, but it turns out they weren't. They were security officers who were actually getting stuck into this guy to stop him from leaving, um, and actually, you know, were successful in the end. But he sort of wrestled his way away from them. They got the stuff off him. Um, a few punches were exchanged, a few kicks were exchanged. But there were people standing... This is like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There were people standing there filming it, people standing there watching it. Um, I don't expect them to help. There was enough security guards. The guy ran away. There were no sign of any cops. There were no police there. And obviously, you know, the guys got the stuff back, took it back into the shop, and they, they said, job done. But it was pretty horrific to watch. Yeah, and yeah, Mike, if I mean, I may, you know, full support for the security team doing that job because it's crucial that they are empowered to be able to act professionally and properly, give them yeah. the correct training, give them the equipment they need. That is a brilliant deterrent for anyone that goes into that store now and thinks there's a chance of being tackled here by the front team before people leave the building. Superb. But what we also need for me is more police officers out there. If you look at the population of this country, say it's 70 million, that roughly works out at for the 150,000 cops we've had, something like just under 496 people per police officer. If you then cut that down further to police officers might do a 12-hour day shift and a 12-hour night shift, you're getting upwards towards one police officer being responsible for it roughly, and it's very rough data, and it's, you know, it's not an exact science, about 1,000 people. Mm. How can you do that? I would struggle sometimes to do with one or two people on my own when I was fully operational. So we need more cops out there to be able to respond to these kind of events. And as Kevin said, you know, we do need a better judicial system. We need to get people before the courts, give them the relevant disposal that they need, be it a, a caution, be it a conviction, or working with, you know, the shops to actually prevent theft as well, because all these costs get knocked onto members of the public, and that's unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely right. Listen, great to talk to both of you. Thank you very much indeed. It's a massive problem, uh, but both of you have addressed lots of it. Kevin Hurley, former Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner. Uh, Steve Hartshorn, Chair of the Police Federation as well. A couple of you uh, have got in touch. Terry in Slough says this, Mike, I'm in my 70s. When I go for a walk around my local beauty spot three times a week, weather permitting, I always carry something to protect myself with. In my opinion, we are no longer a civilised country. We are a country on the verge of anarchy. And Sally says, uh, my husband is a police officer and they are trying to do an initiative about knife crime in schools and the teachers are refusing as they say it will upset the kids talking about knives. Well, half of them are carrying bleeding knives, for heaven's sake. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. And now it's time for this. Now, there have been 80 homicide victims in London so far this year. And that shocking figure includes 17 teenagers. That's according to data compiled by the Press Association News Agency. And the thing about it is that it's not as shocking, perhaps, as you might think, because we're so inured to it now. We're so immune to violence. I mean, certainly if you live in one of Britain's major cities, you will probably walk around at some point or other during the course of a week, of any given week, and you'll witness some kind of crime being committed whether it's somebody on a moped snatching somebody's phone, whether it's somebody on one of those um, high-speed electric bikes running into a shop, getting on the bike and running off with something, whether it's somebody like I saw yesterday trying to shoplift from a, a nearby supermarket, or whether, horror of horrors, it's even something as violent as somebody being stabbed on your own street. Because it's no longer a situation where there are no-go areas and places where the police aren't patrolling. 
because the whole country has become something of a no-go area. We just heard from a couple of you who were giving us messages today saying, if I go out for a walk, I take something with me. There can't be very many women uh, who, when they're trying to get home from either a night out or working late at the office, don't carry a key somewhere in between their fingers or don't carry some kind of spray or some kind of mace or pepper just in case somebody tries to attack them. We're living in a very violent time. We're living in a very lawless time. And we listened to two police experts just there who basically said, look, there is a problem with the lack of policing. And that's true. But it's not just that, is it? There's something else going on. There is a kind of lawlessness to the society. And it often comes, I think, with a police service which is depleted, but also with a political system that's cracked and broken, where there's no clear direction, where people live in a country but don't feel like they belong, where people see that the government does things for them, but none of it helps, where people see that the priorities of the local council are not to keep the streets safe or keep the streets clean. In some places, they're even switching the lights off at night to save energy. It's almost as if we feel slightly like a country in decline. And I think that's no good thing. Tory party conference is going on in Manchester. We'll be talking about it very shortly. But they haven't yet, as far as I can see, addressed the issue of crime. They haven't addressed the huge numbers of families who are grieving just now, today, because of a loss of a loved one. They don't mention the toll that it takes on communities. They don't mention how they're going to solve it. They talk about cracking down. But do they actually crack down? In order to crack down, you've got to have people to do the cracking down. And I think the worry is that this government has lost its way. And the more it loses its way, the more lawless the country becomes. But is it also a factor that many people here perhaps are not inured from crime because they live in it every single day? And if you can't beat them, you join them. I mean, I watch kids every single day coming out of school. They behave very much like kids do, pushing each other, shoving each other, jostling. But there's an edge to it now, it seems to me. I've watched it. I've seen it. I travel on buses. I travel on the underground. You see the way that kids talk to one another now. And it's not the way it used to be. It's a lot more violently sort of tinged. It seems to have language which is much more sweary than it used to be. There's something going on, and it's not good. And I think we need to get a grip of it. Because if we don't, the numbers of people who are getting stabbed, the numbers of people who are getting killed, is going to be dwarfed by what's going to be those numbers in a year's time. Lawless Britain, indeed, is not a nice place to be. And I think it's time we were able to move on from it. But let's talk now about Tory party conference because um, lots of things have been going on. Rishi Sunak's premiership is under a great deal of scrutiny. He's having a go at the cost of HS2. But the surprise, I think, for everyone is that Liz Truss seems to be the star of the show. She's upstaging everyone. Joining me now, senior political advisor James Robinson, live in Manchester at the conference. James, a very good morning to you. Morning. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, you've been a former uh, newspaper man. You've, you've advised many politicians in their time. Um, what do you see? What's your sense of, of, of what you're seeing at the moment up there? It seems from this side of the, uh, uh, of the HS2 line, uh, it seems to be kind of rather fractious, rather strange. Um, and for Liz Trust to emerge as the sort of star of the show uh, is probably the most surprising thing yet. Well, I'll tell you who's had a good Tory party conference, Mike, and that's Keir Starmer. Because you're right, they're all jockeying for position. They've all got their eyes on 
he was going to be the next leader of the Tory party. Uh, Liz has. Uh, Priti Patel has. I was at an event on Sunday night where she effectively launched a leadership bid. She's been doing more since then. Also, Suella Braverman will be in the mix. It just shows you that how bad things have got for Sunak, that people are openly jockeying for his job as leader of the Tory party after the next election, next, which is likely to take place next year. So it's been a very strange conference. Yeah, because normally it used to be that the bogeyman at Tory party conference was always Boris Johnson, wasn't it? Um, you know, before he was prime minister, everybody was dreading Boris showing up and having a huge sort of uh, auditorium filled with his, his cheering and uh, sort of supporters. He's not even there this time. And it kind of tells you more than anything um, that the Tories don't really have a figurehead. They don't really have somebody to look to, to say, this is our guy, this is what he wants, this is where we're going. All of that seems to have gone by the wayside. Well, it's meant to be the Prime Minister, isn't it? Um, yeah. And he's doing a speech, obviously, tomorrow, so we'll see what he has to say. But Liz Truss does embody um, conservative orthodoxy on issues like tax. Low ta obviously, she called for low taxation. She unveiled plans to dramatically decrease tax, cut taxes when she was Prime Minister briefly. That spooked the markets. We all know what happened next. But the fact that she is here and attracting huge numbers, as Boris used to do before he became Prime Minister, is hugely significant. The fact is the Tory members, don't know about the voters, but the Tory members don't like what Sunak is doing. They don't like what Jeremy Hunter's Chancellor is doing. There is a real febrile mood here and it's rebellious and it's being used effectively by Truss. So could we see Truss back as leader of the Tory party in just over a year's time? No reason why not. The members elected her, they didn't elect Rishi, as Liz's people will tell you and remind you every time you speak to them. So Rishi Sunak, in trouble, not uh, really uh, achieving much, not doing much on small boats. I mean, I won't go through the whole list of his five promises, but I can tell you <laughs> he's running out of time to implement even one of them. Well, you don't really need to, do you? Because, I mean, I can't even remember all five of them uh, as they were. The one that sort of helped him <laughs> is inflation, um, but that had nothing to do with him yeah. anyway. Um, he might have helped to put it up, but he didn't really help to bring it down. Um, the small boats, forget about it. You know, the NHS waiting list, he can blame the doctors all he wants, but, you know, that's not going anywhere. You know, and the other two, what was it, growth or something like that? I mean, there's none of that going on. So it doesn't really matter. He, I mean, he also said, did he not, when he made those five pledges, basically judge me by the end of the year. And if I haven't done that, then you can take your own action. So, I mean, has he written his own suicide note? And I, well, I wouldn't... It, it's an invitation to his opponents in the Conservative Party to do just that. They will, they will judge him. And I know it's unlikely, given we're only probably a year away or even less from an election, but I definitely don't think Rishi's position as Prime Minister is as secure as some people think. There is, we've even got rumours about Boris making a comeback, as he tried to when the trust stood down last, last year. Mm. So I think it's, it's it, honestly, end of the year, beginning of the next year, a very difficult time for, for Rishi. Yeah. Regardless of the fact that, as you rightly point out, inflation's coming down and the economy is showing small signs of not getting any worse. Yeah. But um, I think he's, you know, this time next year, if there is a conference, might be an election, um, he's going to be... He's going to be... Well, I think he'll still be leader, but I wouldn't guarantee it. I no. would not guarantee it. No, and I'm, I'm not sure... I mean, I, I, it's a little bit like, um, you know, the, the battle of the Boers, isn't it? If you get Keir Starmer campaigning versus Rishi Sunak, I mean, nobody's really looking forward to them knocking on their door, are they? But what about the other surprising thing that's happened this week? And it's the re-emergence of Nigel Farage. 
who apparently has been lording it around all sorts of kind of um, Liz Truss events. He was at, I'm told yesterday, a couple of high-profile uh, sort of lunches and dinners and that kind of thing. What's he doing there? What's he up to? Well, good question, and I think we just named some uh, leadership contenders, but the truth is, if Nigel Farage was a Tory MP and stood for leader, he'd win by a landslide. Right. That's, that tells you everything you need to know about where the Tory party is right now, mm. either in terms of lack of credible leaders or in terms of how far they've moved to the right, further to the right. I'm not saying whether that's a good or a bad thing, but uh, Farage, I saw him briefly and chatted to him briefly on Sunday night at a Conservative Democracy organisation, I think that's right, CDO dinner. Uh, you know, that's a load of pro-Boris fans who want more democracy restored to party members and party members to have a bigger say in policy. Uh, and Nigel Farage was there. The reception he got was ridiculous. It was incredible. And the same reception he's been getting around conference, cameras following around, people so posing for selfies. Um, yeah, I mean, Nigel, who knows what he's up to? You never know with Farage, do you? Would he start a new party? Would he try and join the Tories? Yeah. Doubt it. Um, but what he is, what, what this conference has showed, he's still got that star quality. He has. He's still got the ability to influence the political debate. Yeah, I mean, I know Nigel. I like him. He's a, he's a decent guy. He's not anything as, as he's painted by the left. Um, but what he is, is a real totem uh, for for people on the right. Um, he's a bit like Boris Johnson. He's a personality. People like him. People warm to him. People look to him for, for leadership. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd welcome his, his return. And it would be incredible if he did decide to take the Tory party and, and actually join it and become part of it. I think, that would be, I think it would be the greatest thing that ever happened to them. Well, stranger things have happened, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely we'll right. We'll James, um, uh, let me, just before I let you go, I mean, Keir Starmer might be sitting at home thinking, I'm doing all right here because they're making a right mess. Mm. But he does have to actually step up to the plate next week. He does have to sound prime ministerial. He does have to sound much less boring. Has he got that in him? We'll find out. It's my diplomatic answer. I think, I think you know, the Labour, Labour Party have to be... <laughs> uh, look, Labour, look, it's Labour's to lose, isn't it? But, but, I think Dave Lammy, the foreign, uh, Shadow Foreign Secretary, was saying this week or yesterday, got to be, there is no way this is in the bag for Labour. No way. Far from it. It'll be the biggest swing, one of the biggest swings ever for them to get a majority of one. So you're right, there is, any complacency uh, is, has to be stamped out because uh, Starmer and the rest of his team have got to convince the British public that although this lot, in my you haven't made a great fist of things in the last 13 years people that his team will do a better job i mean they can't do much worse to be honest like, i hope you don't want me saying that. i mean this is not i can't think of a single achievement that the tories have managed in the last 10 years i mean maybe brexit but no uh, i mean listen i, I wish i could uh, disagree Starmer, with Starmer, you Starmer. i wish i could disagree well, with you but you i go. can't really but but i mean he could make it worse i mean there's a lot of people who say that as well but listen james great to talk to you thank you very much indeed james robinson there uh reporting in live from tory party conference uh where it's all a bit chaotic i mean when you get the stars of the show at tory party conference being liz truss and nigel farage you know where are we going exactly i mean i'm not saying i'm against it i'm just saying rishi sinner she's sitting there going what on earth went wrong? Uh, but let's hear from some of you now, because I want to talk about uh, lawless Britain. I want to talk about the violent crime that's going on as an epidemic in this country. Uh, Bob's in Ludlow uh, wants to talk about that. Bob, a very good morning to you. How are you, Mike? Yeah, very well, sir. What can I do for you? Yeah, basically, to, to my sort of um, view, uh, as an ex-copper, this stems back to the, the early 60s. Mm when the, the government of the day decided to send in the accountants to the police force, as it was, uh, and 
to make whatever cuts that they thought were necessary. So they started putting panda cars on the beat, saying that one panda car could cover the beat of six policemen that were walking the beat. Now, the trouble is that because we've got less and less resources on the street these days, we get less and less intelligence. We get less and less teaching by the police to the younger society. Um, You know, there's just a total lack of interaction now between the police and uh, the upcoming generations because of the fact that the police no longer have the resources. The bobbies that are out there are totally scared in in reality as to what's going to happen to them in terms of backlash from... You know, in, in, in my day, you'd give a kid a clip around the ear for doing something and send him home to mum and dad, and they'd give him a clip around the ear as well. Yeah. Did that these days, a copper, copper would be serving five years for a school and, and stuff like that, you know. It, it's. But presumably as well, it must be the attitude of the parents that have changed too, because nowadays, I think, when police officers do perhaps go back and take the kid home or something like that, they get a very different response to the parents. The parents don't say, you know, oh, that's terrible, thank you for bringing him home, thanks for, you know, warning him not to do it again. They Look, tend to defend the kid, it seems. I, these days I couldn't comment because I'm not on the streets these days and no. interacting with, with these people. But you did get a certain element of that back in the day, yeah. and you always will because society is never the same all, all the way around. Yeah. You will get the responsible ones, but you will always get the irresponsible ones as well. No, absolutely right. Bob, listen, great call. Thank you very much indeed. The problem is, I just don't understand what's gone wrong, and I'd like you to help me figure it out. Good morning. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV, on TV, on radio, online, and on your smart speaker. Coming up, how London councils are pushing back against Sadiq Khan's ULAS expansion. Plus, what on earth is the government playing at with HS2? And what can we expect exactly from the restarting of the COVID inquiry? Now, London councils are fighting back against London Mayor Sadiq Khan's controversial ultra-low emission zone. Bromley Council has actually started fining Transport for London vans for traffic violations, including mounting curbs in residential areas. And we've been talking about the ULES expansion zone for a very, very long time indeed. In fact, you might argue that the Tories managed to win the Uxbridge by-election as a result of the ULES expansion zone because people in Uxbridge simply didn't want it, as most people in London don't. Uh, But I'm delighted to say I'm now joined by Minister for London, Paul Scully. Uh, Paul, uh, great to see you. Um, obviously, looking around the outskirts of, of, of our city, and, and you represent Sutton as well, which is in kind of one of those areas, um, are you kind of uh, sympathising at the moment with the way some of these councils are taking measures, like Bromley, uh, to basically sort of try and frustrate some of these moving vans? Because one of the things that we saw happening was as the, um, you know, the kind of uh, the, the, the people started taking cameras down and vandalising them, the, council, uh, the, the, the London Mayor's Office started putting vans out there to try and catch people um, who were driving around um, and they couldn't be, couldn't be caught by the static cameras. So, so where, where, where are you on this? Uh, look, I, again, I, I'm not going to condone any uh, vandalism and, and destruction of those cameras because I think you, you can't just pick and choose the laws that you want to obey and then uh, disrupt in that way. But I sympathise with people who are picking up fines, having to pay these charges. I've always been against uh, ULES, the ULES expansion. 
So for Bromley and uh, councils like that to actually give parking tickets to a van that's parked on a double yellow line, therefore causing an obstruction, I think is p perfectly reasonable. Mm. But I, I think councils should have primacy. They are elected by their people on a mandate and actually look after those people in a cost of living crisis and their small businesses, something the mayor has failed to do. You talked about the election in, in uh, Uxbridge. The prime minister yesterday described ULAS as the ultra-low electability zone for yeah. Sadiq Khan. This is something that is on him and he, not, he needs to pay the political price. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, one of the things you've been campaigning for as well, uh, and I think you've written to uh, Sadiq Khan, uh, is asking him to remove the ULAS camera from outside the Marsden Hospital. Because even though he would say, well, of course, if people are getting uh, ULAS fines outside that hospital, they'll get an exemption and they won't have to pay. You know, it's a pointless activity, isn't it? I mean, it shows you how, what is driving this. It's greed, isn't it? Well, look, the good news is I got a response. The bad news is it said nothing of, of any use in it. Uh, <laughs> and you're absolutely right uh, that, um, you know, it was just the usual line about, about you, Les, the overall line, and, and oh, you, you can get compensation. Some payments can get... Uh, some patients can get a refund of their charge. Some, not all, clearly not families. There's one fundamental problem, because that zone, there is no sign. The sign saying you're in a ULA zone is smack bang next to the camera. So right. there's no warning at all, because they're coming in from Surrey. What the NHS refund scheme does not do, doesn't give you a refund for your fines. So if you get fined, that's on you. Uh, so with no warning, no accountability, patients, cancer patients, are going to get fined and their families. That's just not fair. Mm. It's not fair. It's actually worse than not fair. It's actually cruel, isn't it? I mean, because people in those situations are already under a fair amount of stress. The last thing you need is some envelope arriving through your letterbox in the morning uh, with a fine that you have to pay, and if you don't pay it, it suddenly spirals up into some ludicrous, ridiculously high-priced fine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, that's exactly it. I mean, look, uh, Mike, you and I are both against this, um, this expansion of ULEZ. I think it's a, it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut. It's not going to do what he thinks it's going to do or is claiming it's going to do in terms of reducing air pollution beyond anything, um, beyond the 1.5% reduction that his own impact report says. But this, that particular camera and what's happening in Bromley, that's implementation issues. So you need to have common sense. If you're going to go against the public mood, at least have some common sense mm. about how you approach it. Yeah. And as far as you know, how is the actual scheme going? Because obviously we know about, uh, you know, the Blade Runners who are taking down these cameras. We know about people um, who are blocking the, uh, uh, the the mobile vans from being able to take pictures and, and giving them and, and sometimes towing them away. You know, there's an awful lot of sort of what you might call low-level resistance out there. I've also heard of people who are saying they're just not paying the fines. I mean, is Sadiq Khan being open enough about how it's going, whether it's actually working? Look, Mike, you asked yeah, ask me how it's going. It's taken me a month to get a letter back about a single <laughs> camera with nothing yeah. in, the, in the letter. So, frankly, I haven't got a clue. We'll be asking questions. The London Assembly Conservatives will be asking questions as well to make sure that we can get the data, including how many fines that particular camera, it, um, when it's been rebuilt, because it's been uh, vandalised again, uh, is actually capturing of people going to the Marsden. But this is the data we need to see to see exactly how it's going.
but I haven't. I don't, just don't know at the moment. Right. And, I mean, we've seen Rishi Sunak uh, this week saying that he's the friend of the motorist. He wants to be uh, somebody who does make laws that actually protect the motorist. Um, he said he's going to try and overturn 20-mile-an-hour zones. It then turns out he can't really do that because it's local authorities that have the permission to do that, by the way, from our democracy. I mean, is there anything that Rishi Sunak can do to help motorists in the way that he wants to, because effectively Sadiq Khan can just turn around and tell him to get stuffed, presumably, if he says, get rid of this expanded right. ULA zone. He, he hasn't got the power, has he? Well, I think there, there is always uh, areas of change to legislation that you can look at. I think the best way is to change the administration, whether that's the mayor or a Labour councils or Lib Dem councils to Conservative councils who will be a friend to the motorists. What we want you know, we want to encourage people away from the most polluting cars, but you encourage people. You do that with people, not to them. Mm. Uh, there's nothing worse than having a, a politician of any sort, any colour, dictating to people what they can and can't do. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and, Paul, just one final question on uh, what I'm calling violent Britain. The last time you and I spoke last week, we'd just unfortunately witnessed the death of a young woman, a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old girl, going to school, stabbed to death in Croydon. We've had another stabbing death since then, making it the 17th teenager stabbed to death uh, in London, this time in Edmonton. Um, I know you've, you've urged Sadiq Khan to do something about knife crime. Why can't he do something? What's, what's the problem? Well, it is a complex issue, to be fair, but you've got to... Um, so where he can do something is really lean into the Met Police, of which he's our de facto police commissioner, police and crime commissioner, to make sure that they have the powers to do stop and search so that they can find the knives in the first place, to make sure that they have the powers to... Uh, or that they are using every avenue to investigate these crimes and getting those arrests. And then it's up to the courts to do the sentencing. It's up to uh, uh, people in, uh, in schools to actually do the education to make sure that they don't grab a knife in the first place. Every, whether it's the mayor, local councils and national government, we all need to do that education piece. But clearly, that's not going to help people this year. That's something that's, uh, that will feed in, in in months and years to come. Absolutely. Paul, thanks very much indeed. Good to talk to you. Paul Scully there, uh, who is the Minister for London, of course, uh, reporting into us from a Tory party conference. And now, um, to get some more reactions to what's actually going on at Tory party conference. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Priscilla Bravman talking later this afternoon. Uh, and of course, tomorrow, Rishi Sunak making his big, big speech. Apparently, uh, one of the stars of the show uh, is Nigel Farage. And the other one is Liz Truss. They've taken all the attention away from Rishi Sunak. They were all mobbed by Tory activists looking for selfies. Now, what does that tell you? I'm delighted to be joined by somebody uh, who might be able to answer the questions that I've got. Uh, she's a former Brexit Party MEP, of course. Alex Phillips is with us. Alex, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, the first question I have for you, and you may be able to answer it, is what is Nigel Farage up to? You know, he's arrived <laughs> up there at Manchester uh, Tory party conference. He's not in the Tory party. He's not, I believe, standing as a Tory MP. I don't think he's running uh, as leader of the Tory party. Um, but he's basically the star of the show, isn't he? If it wasn't for Liz Truss, he'd be the only guy right. that was of any interest at all. Oh, Mike, if you could see the inside of my phone right now. The first thing I messaged uh, Nigel this morning was, Nigel, what are you up to? Uh, and he gave me a call and we spoke about it. But I'm not going to tell you what we spoke about. But what is quite clear, actually, is that the Conservative Party have always been divided. They're now on their knees. And I think, essentially, if they don't win the next election, that looks highly improbable. It's likely there'll be another leadership race. I mean, can we be bothered with another one? No, but yeah. uh, that's pretty much what happens when um, a party party loses an election catastrophically. And so people are already jostling for position. And as per usual, there is a fight over the ideology of the party, over the heart of the party. And I went to an event myself in Manchester on Sunday night, the CDO event, and you might have seen Lord Crudders at that event, one yeah. of the big Tory donors, stand up and say to other donors, stop funding them. They don't have a democratic system of picking candidates. They're trying to flood the Conservative Party with sort of Lib Dem card carriers, essentially. Um, and there's this huge fight going on between what people describe as the One Nation Conservatives, the ones that tend to be having a close relationship with the EU. There's sort of Jeremy Hunts of this world, if you will, who find the Suella Bravermans and the Pretty Patels, um, you know, rather shocking and uncomfortable. And, and on one side, you've got the sort of, let's say, the more right-wing side of the Conservative Party saying, we must fight to regain control. Then on the other side, you've got events elsewhere that they will be saying, we've got to flush out these radicals. We need to sort of regain the centre ground. Who wins at the end of the day? That will probably happen after the next election. Um, but you can see this playing out right now in Manchester. And I think Nigel's just there having a good time and basically stirring it all up a bit. Yeah, nice try, Alex. Um, I'm not buying any of that at all about Nigel because Nigel's a very clever man. You've known him a very long time. Uh, I've known him a very short time. I think he's a brilliant politician. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have left the European Union. You know, he's had more influence over the course of the recent history of this country and its politics than I think any other single politician in, in history. So, I mean, I'm not going to have another go asking the same question, but, but I mean, he's not just there to sort of get glad-handed and do his shows and, and talk to a few people. I mean, he must be attempting, at the very least, to influence the way that it all goes next, because Rishi Sunak's probably a lost cause, you know, but what comes after him? Well, exactly. And I think, look, in all honesty, Mike, I'm not trying to spin you a yarn here. 
I did speak to Nigel. I haven't got any sort of dirty secrets to spill. I hope he doesn't actually hear me do this because I think I phoned him because I was coming on your show, which wasn't what I was doing at all. I was catching up with him because he's an old chum. Um, but I think that, look, essentially we've seen this a thousand times before, haven't we, where people in the Conservative Party think it can be reformed from the inside. They right. think if they get their right person in power, then actually, you know, true blues will have their person and it will all be restored and all the rest of it. But but what I would say, and in fact, what I actually said to Nigel is I think what the, the event I was at hosted by the CDO, what they have is essentially the backing of the a vast majority of the electorate and a backing of the vast majority of the membership. But you can see what happened when we had Liz Truss in office, that that doesn't play out well, because what the other side have is the backing of big businesses and the powerful donors who mm. tend to be more about, you know, going back to the EU and sort of soft politics and lots of migration to bring down wages and so on and so forth. So it's almost like the Brexit debate's playing out. You've got the sort of left behind community, the real Democrats and the ones who want to represent all the constituencies who could win over the red wall, and then the interests of big business. And I think this is the huge tug of war going on. And quite frankly, I don't know how it's going to go, but I wouldn't exactly assume that they're going to pick one side or the other, put it to bed, and then everyone moves forward. That hasn't happened. They're essentially a coalition government. They have been for 13 years, which is why they haven't got anything done. It's been U-turns, broken promises, pointless manifestos, because they don't know what they are. And I've said from the beginning, it's about time those in the Conservative Party that want to see a return to true conservatism leave their party and actually join reform, because there is an entity there, as there was with UKIP, as there was with the Brexit Party, there's an entity there who has exactly that, their ideology, who think the same way and want to get that stuff done. Yet they're so addicted and loyal to this brand of the Conservatives, they won't buy well, I have a feeling that after the next election, attitudes might begin to change. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, did you get the sense when you were there, and 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 did Nigel say this as well, that they have given up on the next election? Because I'm not convinced yet that Keir Starmer's got it in the bag, and I don't think many people are. I'm not even sure Keir Starmer's convinced. So, I mean, it's a bit premature to just give up on Rishi Sunak, isn't it? Because right. if you can influence what he does between now and, say, next October, when the next election is likely mm. to be, um, you know, there's a chance that they could get back in. Right, yeah. Uh, but this is the twilight zone, Mike. Isn't this exactly what has happened every single election? They suddenly veer back to true Conservative values when it's close to an election or when they've got someone nipping at their heels on the right wing of politics. I mean, what you've got to remember is the Conservatives essentially have monopoly on the right-hand side of the spectrum. The Labour Party have challenges in the form of the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, the Green Party, Plaid Cymru. The Conservatives basically own that space unless there is essentially a Farage-led organisation. Now, we still have the you know remnants of the Brexit party in reform. Reform is polling extremely well. Reform is regularly now hitting double figures, which is equal to the Lib Dems, actually. But the way that broadcast tends to cover reform is we may as well not exist at all. Um, so reform could yet provide a shock. But under first past the post, it's unlikely, I think, to change things massively. But what we could see with a strong Conservative Party and a Rishi Sunak who is pulled back towards the right, who can take back some of those red wall votes, is a Labour Party not getting a massive outright majority. Now, if that happens, Mike, and the Labour Party have to go into coalition with someone else, it will be one of those smaller parties in the left wing of politics. And what they will demand, what they're deal on the table will be is we will come into coalition with you if you bring in proportional representation. 
If that happens, the game changes. You suddenly have an opportunity for guess who to become the next prime minister. Oh, you play it forward by five years, but with proportional representation, you could have a Farage-led country. Wow. Well, that's quite a statement. Interesting times. Interesting times indeed. Just before I let you go, Alex, a couple of other things to mention to you. Um, a headline I never thought I'd actually see on the front page of the Daily Telegraph today. Transgender women to be banned from female wards. Sorry? I mean, how the hell did they get in there in the first place? But, you know, they do this. They see these little things, don't they? They know where public opinion stands on this. They don't dare go hard enough. And they turn around and they say, we're no, no longer going to allow NHS trusts to let trans people use female-only wards. I mean, uh, largely it's under the jurisdiction of individual hospital trusts anyway. But it's not enough. It doesn't go far enough. Because the big issue they need to be tackling is the fact that so many children are being brainwashed. I mean, forget those people who have already transitioned. Mm. And I think we've got to be quite clear that transition must involve a medical surgery. It can't just be a bloke sticking on a frock and saying, I'm a woman now. Um, but what we're not looking at is what we're doing to the next generation. And I still mm. don't think the Conservative Party have been strong enough on this. It's something I'm going to talk about in my own speech at our conference next week. But the Conservatives do this. They breadcrumb, don't they? they? They leave little hints that they love us really and they're going to do things for us and we're very special to them. Push comes to shove, they don't care. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing you again. Uh, Alex, very kind of you to talk to us. Thanks very much indeed, Alex Phillips, with the lowdown there. Could we have a Nigel Farage-led government? Extraordinary times, that would be. Uh, right, moving on. Today could finally be the day we tell HS2 to rest in peace. The Prime Minister is expected to call it quits on the northern leg of the beleaguered rail project at Tory conference, uh, having condemned the spiralling costs. And I'm joined now by Conservative councillor for Birmingham, uh, who is a member uh, of the Shadow Cabinet for Finances, uh, Myrion Jenkins. Uh, Myrion, very good morning to you. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Morning, Mike. Now, you're one of the people who wants HS2 to be completed in, in its original form. Um, by that, do you mean the original Y-shaped form where it goes up to Birmingham and then branches to Leeds and Manchester? Yes. I mean, there's, there's a number of factors. You say one of the people, 70% of the businesses in Birmingham support HS2. But what, what we've got to remember and what is discussed very little when HS2 comes up on the media is that the real rationale for HS2 is to improve freight capacity. Um, the, I mean, if, if you bear in mind that when HS2 is operating, um, it'll, it'll mean that on that West Coast main line, which is very congested, especially in the mornings, it'll be possible to run 144 extra freight trains every day. And that'll take about two and a half million lorry journeys off the road. Um, it'll also provide additional capacity for stations along that West Coast main line. So you'll be able to have more trains running for passengers in places like Rugby and, and Milton Keynes and, and the like. Um, yes, the, the saving of time uh, is nice as well. So, you know, it turns the journey from Birmingham to London from about one hour 20, which I've done many, many times, to a journey of about 40 minutes. But of course, when you then include the northern cities, um, that saving in journey time starts to become a consideration. So, you know, if we work crudely on the basis that HS2 is half in the journey time, um, a, a saving of 40 minutes from Birmingham to London might not seem that significant. It certainly wouldn't be enough on its own to justify the investment. When you're saving 50% of the journey time from Leeds or Manchester to London, people may well then start to think that that's significant. 
But isn't part of the problem, Mario? I'm not certain your numbers are entirely right there. I don't think it's a 40-minute time saving because at least uh, it might have been that if it was going straight into Euston, but it's not going straight into Euston. So it's going to Old Oak Common, a place I know well uh, down here in West London. It's going to take you another 20 at least minutes to get from there into central London. So even if it was a 40-minute saving, um, you're only really saving 10 or 15 minutes by the end of it. Um, also, the other thing that I would say to you is that Part of the reason that the HS2 is meant to be built is that it's meant to help commuters to travel. So few people now commute compared to what it used to be like. You know, when, when HS2 was envisaged, it, you know, we were a fully, you know, commuting country. But now, we, at least three days of the week, people aren't going anywhere because they're working from home. And I know that that's sort of, you know, coming back a little bit. But, but you must know yourself that there's a lot fewer people using trains now compared to the way that they were being used even 10 years ago. Um, it, yes, but remember, the, the rationale is predominantly one of increasing freight capacity, um, not necessarily speeding up or increasing passenger numbers, al although that is the, the case as well. Um, <clears throat> I agree with you about O'Common. Um, you know, the, uh, I mean, having travelled into Euston many times, the connectivity onto the Victoria Northern Lines, then you've got Euston Square that puts you onto the Circular Metropolitan Line. I mean, that's very important in terms of then moving around central London. So I think it would be most regrettable if HS2 stopped, uh, what is it, you know, six miles um, outside London. But let, let us also um, consider another factor here, Mike, which is about high-speed rail generally. There's 28 countries out there that have got high-speed rail, and there's another 30 uh, in construction or, or contemplation. And, you know, are we really saying that we're not in the top 50 countries in the world in terms of being able to invest in, in railways? Plus the fact as well that we haven't built a high-speed line north of London for over 100 years. So I think we're well due some investment in, in, in um, modern train travel. Uh, and, you know, like I say, 50 other countries across the world are able to do it. Surely we can. I don't know which countries you're referring to, but I mean, I'm sure every other country that's done it has done it with a lot more efficiency and a lot less money than us because we've, we've been talking about HS2, it seems to me, uh, for forever. You know, it was all originally started under Tony Blair's government. That was they, they were the people that had the idea to do it. You know, we're now talking about, you know, 15 years later and there's nothing actually there. There are no trains. There's no track to speak of, as far as I know. Uh, we're told that there's a tunnel... Uh, which is going to run most of the way from London to Birmingham. So if you are on that and you are a commuter, I presume you won't get a signal, so you won't be able to do any work, you know. And the, the cost is ballooning. Um, we've got nothing to show for it. There's no shortage of investment. It's just a shortage of product, I think, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very valid criticism. Yes, HS2 Limited was first formed in 2009. Yeah. And now we're in 2023. And we're not a lot further on. And you're absolutely right. But I think that this is attributable to the very poor performance of public procurement and project management in the UK. I mean, if, if you consider that these other countries that you mentioned, one of them is California. They're building at $56 million per mile. Um, in France, it's typically about 40 million euros per kilometre. Um, the uh, TGV is about 20 million kilometers, um, uh, 20 million euros per kilometer. Now in China, it's 21 million dollars per kilometer, and yet ours is running at over 300 million pounds per mile. So even if we allow for the different geography, you know, the fact that there's been some inflation in the meantime, however you cut it, our high-speed train line 
is costing at least three times as much as it is in these other countries. And you would hardly regard California as being a cheap place to buy things. So I, I think, you know, a lot of the failure of, of HS2 so far has been the dire state of public procurement, the, their inability to achieve value for money, like you said, you know, with endless consultants and, and, and other people with their, uh, taking money out of it. And, and public procurement generally is so inefficient in this country, plus our project management has been poor, that the fact that it's taken this long to get to the stage where we're, you know, probably not even halfway through the project yet, to Birmingham, let, let alone building the Manchester and Leeds uh, links. Well, that's the problem. And I mean, with the best will in the world, without wishing to be in any way morbid, it probably won't be ready until after you and I have both passed on, you know, the way things are going. So I think you've just made a very a cogent argument there for stopping it now, haven't you? <laughs> uh, no, I've made a cogent argument for getting public procurement efficient in this country and obtaining value for money. I mean, I, I've seen it going on uh, locally in Birmingham where procurement is, is very inefficient and they find it very difficult to get value for money. But I've also got a lot of experience of seeing the same happening uh, in central government. So um, uh, the, the argument, I think, is that we should be building HS2 far more quickly and for a lot less money than we are at the moment, you know, the budget started at what was it, 20 billion, and now, um, although it, I think it's officially at just under 50 billion, people are talking about it running up to 100 billion by the end. Yeah. You know, that's not a failure of train building and the arguments for having efficient railways. That's just a failure of procurement and project management. Yeah. Well, it's woeful, basically. I mean, if you tried to run a business that way, uh, you'd soon be out of business. But listen, thank you very much uh, indeed for talking to us. Um, HS2, still a big story up there at Tory party conference, but surely there can't any longer be an argument for keeping it, can there? Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic and Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the home of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, of course. The COVID inquiry restarts today. Did you even know it had stopped? With the stage the politicians would have been dreading, uh, the module on core decision-making and political governance. Now, if you, like me, have no idea what that even means, uh, we're hopefully uh, going to get an answer from uh, the founder of Us For Them, which campaigns, of course, on behalf of children and does a brilliant job, Molly Kingsley. Molly, very good morning to you. How are you doing? Uh, good morning, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. Welcome to the brand new, uh, hugely expensive uh, studio that we've got here for the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We've been turbocharged, so very nice to see you. Um, let's talk about the COVID inquiry. I mean, one, I didn't realise it had actually stopped. I ne I'm never really sure when it's on. Nobody seems to know how it's running. Um, and I don't even know what this next stage is supposed to be about. It talk talks about governance, talks about, you know, politicians. What, what's, what's going on? It's a good question. I mean, I think the first point to make here is you've had a very extended break. So the last public hearings were um, at the other end of summer. So back right. in June, early July, I believe. So they've really, you know, they've had this two and a half month really break, which isn't to say they've not been doing things behind the scenes. Right. They may have been, but there's not been any evidence of that. Um, and, you know, given one of the things that the inquiry has already come under a lot of fire for is this very protracted timetable, which is seeing it run into, you know, half a decade right. or more. Um, why have we had a two and a half month break is the first question. I think the second question is the lack of transparency, as mm. you've said. And, you know, just before coming on your show, Mike, I had a look to see if the witness schedule for this week was up yet. And it is up for this week, but not beyond this week. And this was very much a pattern that we saw in module one, right. where the announcement of the public with witnesses was made really just with days to spare. 
And that gives no one who is trying to follow the inquiry, to hold the inquiry itself to account, any real notice to prepare. You would have thought for something like this, particularly over a very lengthy and relaxed, one might say, timetable, they ought to be able to give as much more notice of what's going on. And um, to answer your question about what is this module about, this is the key module. So this is the module that will examine the key pandemic um, non-pharmaceutical intervention. So it right. won't look at vaccines, that will come later. Um, but this is the module that ought to be looking at things like face masks, like the original lockdown, like subsequent lockdown, like the rule of six, like all these crazy right. rules that we may suspect didn't always do much, but came with huge harms. Um, and this module ought to be looking at the decision-making processes that key ministers and key advisors, um, were, you know, led to the to these outcomes. So this will take us back to those days where we used to sort of huddle around the television and see what the announcement was going to be at five o'clock and kind of sigh, um, you know, hopelessly when they said. And so we will now be asking you um, to go to the pub only with six people um, and only to uh, eat something as well as having a drink. And so we might get to find out exactly who came up with that uh, and which idiot decided that was a good idea. Yeah, well, I mean, you say sigh, I would say scream, actually. <laughs> You're in January when, you know, your kids are going to be off school for another two months. I was, There was no sighing involved at no. that point. But, um, but, yeah, the well, we might or we might not, because, of course, the other story today is that Sunak's WhatsApp messages has been another wrangle over, you know, we, we I'm sure you're... Viewers will be aware of the wrangle over Boris's WhatsApp messages right. back in June. Um, there was, that ended up in court, actually. Mm. And the result of that is that the Boris WhatsApp messages are in part going to be released to the inquiry. I say in part because rather unbelievably, he is claiming that the messages from, I think, 31st of January it is till the beginning of June, 7th of June, uh, have not been retrieved from his phone. Right. He's unable to explain why. You know, obviously, that's a pretty key this is period. The, uh, in... This is the other phone situation, isn't it, where he couldn't this... figure out how to open the phone and he was worried, apparently, that if he opened it the wrong way, that all the messages would be wiped. So, therefore, he's not yeah, opening ex it. Exactly. So we've got some of his messages, right. not all. And now Sunak is saying, oh, well, actually, I've also changed phones a few times. And surprise, surprise, my messages don't seem to have been recorded. And I think, you know, you can laugh about this, but this is a really, really serious point. Well, do you know, How... I laugh not because it's funny, but because I'm so exasperated by the way that they continually dodge the bullet. I find it extraordinary. I mean, I've just got a new phone literally two weeks ago. Um, and funnily enough, all of my messages have been transferred from the old phone. I mean, what politicians have special phones, apparently, that don't do that? Well, I mean, they're busy tracking all our phones, aren't they? And to claim that the key ministers running the country have no visibility over their past messages, no records, it, it defies any kind yeah. of credibility. Right. And actually, it's a really serious point because it speaks to a lack of basic governance, which really, really marks... The, these mm. three years. I mean, some of these decisions, and, you know, we have unfortunately been going over it in an awful lot of de detail, haven't we, Mike? Yeah, <laughs> week after okay. week. But there were decisions that lacked any grounding in ethics, in reasonableness, yeah. 
in any proportionality, this idea that if you're going to impose an intervention, it needs to be, you know, the harms of the intervention need to be proportionate to the benefit. All of that went out of the window. And now we're being told that the methodology of making the decision has also gone out of the window. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but just no, this is not good enough. And I really, really hope the inquiry come down incredibly strongly with the force of law if necessary on this, because there is no point having an inquiry if we can't have access to these messages. Like that is clear. It is very clear that ministers decided to conduct public business in a very private and haphazard manner. That was their decision. But having made that decision, they have opened those WhatsApps to the realm of public investigation and examination, and they must be made available. So are we expecting then to see some of these former cabinet ministers and maybe still current cabinet ministers appearing before the inquiry? Um, and do, do they not have enough powers? Is that the other thing you're saying? Well, uh, it looks like, I mean, what happened with the Boris messages is the inquiry, to be fair to Lady Hallett, and that, you know, I can be harsh on her, but I think, to be fair, they ended up in court over the WhatsApp messages, and I think that was a very, very good call. So I think they need to use every power at their disposal to force disclosure. Um, the Yes, the answer is yes, key decision makers, which will include the, you know, the infamous quad of ministers. Yeah. So Sunak, Johnson, Gove, Javid, um, also key other ministers, right. um, you know, ought to be appearing in this module. There are some notable absences. At the moment, Gavin Williamson, Education Secretary, has not been called. How you can have a sensible module on school closures, you know, oddly, that ought to come mm. into this. And arguably, school closures were... Were they perhaps the single most devastating intervention of the pandemic? I think certainly many parents would yeah. say so. How you can have an examination of the decision-making around that without calling the then Education Secretary, I do not know, but that is apparently where we are. Yeah, it is extraordinary, yeah, because I was reading this morning that the former Children's Commissioner, uh, Anne Longfield, who is going to give evidence apparently to the COVID inquiry at some point soon, she's actually linking um, the increase in stabbing deaths and the increase in violent crime um, in our cities in this country to the lockdown. She's actually saying as a result of lockdown, a lot of these kids have now become more violent, more dangerous, and many of them are now taking part in sort of extreme instances of violence every couple of weeks, when in the old days it was every kind of three or four months. Yeah, and I, you know, I think she's entirely right, I'm sure, to do that. And it, when we stop and start children's education, when we force them out of school, you know, we know, unfortunately, that one of the things that has happened is we have degraded the sanctity, really, of education and schooling, and many of them simply have not returned to the school system. So, you know, persistent absence, that's the number of children who, as it sounds, are regularly, persistently missing school, has doubled since the pandemic. And there's now, I think it's 22.5%, so more than one in five children are persistently absent from school. I mean, this is just really, really devastating. And it will start, of course, to bleed into other aspects of society. So you've mentioned crime. I think the other aspect that we've not spent enough time talking about, but we need to, is speech and language and communication. So there are apparently five million children who are not reaching the expected age milestone goals in speech and language since the start of the pandemic. And we know that there's a very significant correlation between adults with less good communication skills and 
um, the number of those adults that end up in prison in the criminal justice system. So there's going to be all these impacts that, you know, bleed through for years, perhaps even decades to come, and they must form a core part of the inquiry. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, we should watch it with interest, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it again uh, when they finally come up with some answers. But whether they will or not, we shall see. Molly, thanks very much indeed. Molly Kingsley there. Thanks, uh, Mike. Us for them. Uh, giving us the lowdown. On the next stage of the code, what is it about people that work in and around government that they think they can basically take the entire summer off? I mean, you know, Molly's probably right. Yes, they were probably reading things, perhaps, and yes, perhaps they were uh, talking to one another and making phone calls and all that. But what is it about Westminster that makes them think, particularly because they're on the public purse payroll, by the way, that they can just stop working sort of at the end of June, roughly, and not bother coming back to it until October? What's going on? Business and Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch used her speech at Tory conference to hit out at people who suggest that racism puts you at a disadvantage in the UK. I tell my children that this is the best country in the world to be black because it is a country that sees people not labels. So, um, is it the best country in the world to be black in? It's a front page story, this, on the Daily Mail, which is an unusual front page story for them. Uh, we see people not labels, says Kemi Badenoch, in a rousing speech on race, gender uh, and Brexit. Kemi Badenoch has always been, in my view, one of the more forward-thinking um, MPs, one of the more forward-thinking cabinet ministers and possibly a future leader uh, of the Conservative Party. So it's a good time to question whether what she says is right and whether or not she should have said it. I'm joined now uh, by broadcaster and commentator Rafia Hagen and culture writer Dr Rakeem Hassan. Welcome to both of you. Uh, welcome to the brand new, hilariously brilliant uh, Independent Republic studio. Um, we'll have to get you in it one of these days. Rafia, let me start with you. Um, is Kemi Badenoch right when she says there's no better country in the world uh, to be black than Britain? Well, I wish she was right, but I think there is a bit of gaslighting going on here by Kemi Badenoch. There was a survey that came out just last week with 10,000 black people were um, interviewed and asked their views, and only one, of, one in 10 of them uh, felt proud to be British. Uh, you know, you have uh, black people are twice as likely to live in poverty, twice as likely to be unemployed. 87% uh, of them feel as well that they have worse health outcomes, you have black women are four to five times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts. So I wish that what Kemi Badenoch was saying was true, but I think the evidence proves otherwise. And we would love to think that we don't give people labels. We would love to think that we don't judge people by their skin colour and by their character. But unfortunately, that just isn't the reality for a lot of black people living in Britain. And what do you see uh, as her definition of black? Because obviously, I mean, I, I, Dr. Rakib, I'll come to you in a second, but, but I hearken back to a time when, uh, back in probably before you were born, the Tory party had a, a campaign a slogan which was aimed at attracting um, people that had come here from Uganda who were generally thought to be business people, you know, people who had fleed uh, the Idi Amin regime, originally come from Gujarat and India. Um, and they actually had a... Um, uh, an Indian man standing with a suit on, holding a briefcase, and it said, the Labour Party calls you black, we call you British. I mean, if we want to delve into what it means to be British, what it means to be black, that's such a huge conversation, isn't it? And, you know, when I look at what the definition to be black for myself, I mean, I look at myself, I see myself in the mirror, you know, and there is a lot 
of conversations to be had about what it means to be British, I think. And being black British, you know, is something that only one in 10 people feel that they are proud to say, unfortunately. And so, you know, people can put their own labels and their own definitions and things. When I talk about being black, obviously I talk about myself. I talk about what I see in the mirror. But I think there's lots of difficulties in conversations, certainly, around that. Mm. And Dr. Rakeem, let me come to you. I mean, is she talking about you? Is she talking about a fear? Is she talking about every ethnic minority um, which would describe itself as, as, as um, you know, people of colour? What, what does she actually mean? Because obviously an experience is different for every single different ethnic minority, isn't it? No, absolutely. The black um, British population is incredibly diverse in itself. I'd also make the point that in recent times, there's been British black polling, which has not been statistically representative of the UK's um, black British population at large. So we have to be wary over some of those findings. Now, Kemi Badenoch's point was that there's no other country in the world that is better to be a black individual. So I think what we have to do here is, is make international comparisons. And there was a report published by British Future marking the 75th year uh, 75-year anniversary of Windrush, which showed that four in five ethnic minority people believe that it was better to be a minority in Britain than other countries such as France, the United States and Germany. In France, we have this uh, so-called colorblind egalitarianism, which is bred a political culture, Mike, which, which largely overlooks very real forms of racial and religious discrimination. In the US, I consider that to be a relatively youthful experiment. The United States, which is still struggling to get the grip to grips with the legacy of slavery and segregation. And I think when you look at the UK, when it comes to the provision of anti-discrimination protections on the grounds of race, ethnicity and religion, Post-Brexit Britain comfortably outperforms a string of major EU member states, including France, Germany and the Netherlands. So I don't consider Kemi Badenoch's statements to be controversial at all. Well, that's the thing. Um, and coming back to you, Afia, I mean, because you, you can't... I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit like saying, you know, white people's experiences in, in Britain are all the same, because they're not. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a whole range of people who uh, may, ref- may reference people like Kemi Badenoch, uh, but may also reference people living in very poor housing um, in the middle of, of, of the city of Liverpool, you know. So, you know, th- there is not just one black experience, is there? Absolutely, and I think that's a very important point to note, that black people are not a monolith. Uh, and everybody in an ethnic minority can't be lumped into being black. You know, there is so many different ethnic minorities that live in this country. Uh, when we're talking about black people, you're absolutely right. They're not a monolith. We all don't have the same experiences. I mean, I grew up in Glasgow, for instance. There's lots of black people that didn't grow up in Liverpool, London, in the countryside, in Wales, wherever. There's lots of different experiences for black people. We are absolutely not a monolith. We don't all vote one way. We don't all do the same job. We don't all believe the same things. Uh, And I would agree, actually, that definitely the outcomes uh, for people who are black, and and I'm just going to say black in this instance, in the UK is certainly better than some countries in Europe, particularly some countries in Europe, particularly France and Italy. Mm. But I definitely wouldn't agree with Kemi Badenoch when she says there's no better place to be black in the world than Britain. I just don't think that's true for a lot of people's experience. 
And Rakeeb, let me, let me come to you, because there are those that you sometimes write about um, who have made a kind of industry out of the race business, if you like. You know, we've got a country here where lots and lots of people want to be uh, part of it. They come here from all over the world. Some, some may be black, some may be uh, white. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, lots of people want to come here, which is a pretty good indicator of uh, what it's like to be here, I would say. Um, but do you think that the attitudes in this country, you know, we're often regarded as, uh, by some people in, in what I would call the race industry, as a racist country. But I think France is a far more racist country. I think you're right, America is a far more racist country. Um, has this kind of argument become turbocharged recently, if you like? No, absolutely. And I've often made the point that for all its flaws, the UK is a relatively successful multiracial democracy compared to France, Germany and the United States. But that's not to say that improvements can't be made, Mike. Um, I want the UK to be the truest gold standard example of a multiracial democracy. I still think there's forms of labour market discrimination, especially towards people who have culturally distant names. I think that could be better tackled by the, um, through the expansion of name blind applications. Uh, I also think that Afro made a very important point that when it comes to maternal mortality, um, black British women are four times more likely, those rates are four times higher than their um, white peers. And I think that we need to thoroughly investigate that. I think that when it comes to policing, there's still improvements to be made in terms of police community relations, especially in London. Um, in recent times, the Met has really struggled to rebuild trust with many um, inner city communities. But I think Afro will also agree that when you're looking at issues such as poverty and deprivation. I think one of the biggest problems in black British communities is that relatively high rates of lone parent households. So we need to talk a great deal about family instability. So I think there's, there's ways that our institutions can work better, but there also need to be very serious conversations held within particular communities. Yeah. I mean, Afia, uh, he's got a point, hasn't he? Because we hear all the time of, of, of parts of Britain which have become uh, almost segregated in a way, not necessarily between white and, and, and black members of Britain, um, but people from other places who have come to this country and who are kind of brought feuds with them and things like that. You know, we, we saw it in Leicester, uh, we've seen it up in Bradford, you know, we've seen places where uh, two, what you might call ethnic minority communities, are kind of at each other's throats simply because of where they come from. And yes, those are issues which do affect communities and those are issues which are prevalent. And you also have to bring in the issues of class. When we, we talked about poverty there as well, uh, these can also impact these issues. And then uh, when they're impacting communities, you also bring about the issues of violence as well and what's happening to our young people. So you have all these issues that feed into one another. And I think it's really about getting to the bottom of those um, to help issues of poverty, to help issues of crime and violence and all these kind of things. Um, and I think there's, there's also, you know, people come to this country um, and, and yes, they come from absolutely all over. And I think they think the experience when they get here is going to be different than it is. And I think, you know, when you said that this um, has become turbocharged recently, absolutely is because there's a real rise in rhetoric against people from different countries. You know, I think that's why going back to the survey, so little people felt that um, they were proud to be like British, you know, because there is a real fuel of kind of this, this right wing rhetoric that sets people apart. And that is really, really disappointing. And I think that will fuel people's feeling that perhaps this is not a good place to be black, that perhaps they're not proud to be black British. 
But then again, I suppose you could say that about any particular country in any particular time, couldn't you? I mean, Rakeem, what if we turn the question around the other way and go, is this the best country to be white in? Well, I mean, I just make the point that generally my inclusive view is that we're a relatively successful multiracial democracy. Of course, there needs to be um, improvements when it comes to inter integration, especially in um, urban and diverse um, parts of the country. But I think overall, when it comes to social belonging, um, so, yes, social cohesion, national sense of belonging, trust in um, public institutions, we are in a better condition than other multiracial democracies. That doesn't mean that we can't improve in those areas. But I think more generally, I think Afa makes a fantastic point that the Black British population is incredibly diverse. I'll give you an example when it comes to education. Pupils of Black African origin tend to perform better than pupils of uh, white British um, heritage. Pupils of black Caribbean origin perform worse than their white British peers. So I think that while there are important conversations to be had about race, I think we also need to talk about culture, Mike. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Well, it's a fascinating topic. We must uh, explore it some more. Uh, but Afia, thank you very much indeed. Dr Rakeem as well. Uh, good to talk to both of you. And let me ask you that question. Uh, is this the best country to be white in? Um, or, if you want to answer the other question, is this the best country to be black in? You know, do you agree with them? Do you agree with what they said? I mean, obviously, a lot of people want to come and live here, so it must be a pretty good place, shouldn't it be? Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, Tory party conference doesn't seem to be going quite to plan for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. You have to wonder uh, whether those senior Tories have got their eyes on an extra stint in number 10 or on succeeding him uh, when they go into opposition. Interesting times, I'm afraid to say, up there. It seems to have been all about everybody but Rishi Sunak so far. But let's check in uh, to Tory party conference with our very own uh, international editor, Isabel Oakshot. Isabel, uh, very good afternoon to you. Um, it's all very odd up there, isn't it? Tell me uh, I'm wrong or, or tell me why it's so weird. No, no, you're, you, are, you are so not wrong. This is really beginning to go off the rails, if I may use a, a train <laughs> analogy. Uh, what we have here is a conference that today is very much in danger of being derailed by the great HS2 fiasco. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, we have got two Andys, Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, and Andy Street, the conservative mayor of Birmingham, who are furious that this government is about to axe, or appears to be about to axe, a leg of the ruinously expensive HS2 project. So Andy and Andy, versus Rishi and Jezza. That's Rishi, the Prime Minister, and Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, who are beginning to realise that this whole thing is just spiralling way out of control in terms of the cost versus benefit. And to make matters even more uncomfortable for the Tories here in Manchester, the conference centre is, as you may be able to see from the background here, actually an old railway station. So we can let all those analogies run all day and the headlines are going to be glorious. And appears that they are going to uh, call an emergency cabinet meeting to try to reach a conclusion over to what to do about this extra leg of HS2 after days of speculation, which is probably the worst of all worlds, really, politically. Yeah. You've got all this speculation mounting that it's going to be axed, but they won't quite say whether it is or it isn't. And all of that overshadowing the main events and proceedings here on the agenda at the party conference. Then you've had Liz Truss, 
who yesterday was very much the star turn at conference. That has caused fury uh, in number 10 and amongst many uh, Tory, just not just the grassroots members who actually rather were rather pleased by her appearance, but some of the MPs here who feel, feel that actually she is just a memory that they want to forget. This right. was not a time that they want to be harking back to. So, you know, it's always delicious for us political journalists when it slightly goes off the boil. Yeah. Um, and that is exactly what appears to be happening here today. And it's a kind of a problem of their own making, really, isn't it? Because it was Rishi Sunak's people, presumably, in Number 10, who started leaking that they might be considering getting rid of uh, the, the northern bit of HS2 to Manchester, having already probably decided not to go to Leeds. And, and by creating this kind of, as you say, uncertainty, um, they're now sort of damned if they do and damned if they don't, because if they say they're going to keep it going, people will accuse them of being, you know, unwise with the, the spending that they're going to take on. And secondly, if they say they're going to kill it, then the two Andes and everybody else who wants it done are going to give them a, a, another kicking. So, I mean, they might as well just give up. I mean, if I was Richie Sinner, I'd literally come out with my hands up and go, just shoot me now, you know? Um, I think there's no danger of him doing that. Um, but you're right that politically it's the worst of all worlds stringing out the agony, as it were, because, you know, it, it sort of feels inconceivable after all of this that they say, actually, we are going to do this. That will yeah. look absolutely ridiculous after all the speculation that they're not going to do it. But equally, if they ax it, they're going to be in a world of hurt as well. When there is a saying in business, the first loss is the best loss. In other words, once you realise you wasted a load of money, don't carry on throwing money at the problem and just waste more. Uh, and that's the territory I think many Conservatives believe that this government is in. Uh, there is no good sort of outcome to this. A lot of billions have been wasted. But actually, to get out now is probably better than throwing even more at it. And I think a lot of Conservative members here today would be of the view that actually you should junk the whole thing. You know, just junking one leg of it isn't enough to stop the total fiasco. You know, in the time that it's taken not to build this thing, you know, other countries have built whole cities. And, and you know, we just it just underlines, I think, um, our sort of institutional inability in this country to actually get big infrastructure projects off the ground. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And we've already spent five times more than it, the whole thing was meant to cost. And we haven't even got anywhere. And I've, I only found out the other day that the, the, the line between Birmingham and London, which won't, which won't get you here any quicker anyway, goes about 90% of the way in a tunnel. Now, you and I know what, about tunnels. Now, unless they've got some kind of magic um, you know, line going through it, that means you won't be able to work because there won't be any Wi-Fi, you won't be able to do anything. So even that part of it seems to have been sort of misthought out. Yeah, I mean, it do, look, it doesn't sound like a very pleasurable experience. No. And we haven't even got on to how much it'll cost you for a ticket on this super high-speed train mm. that doubtless won't have any staff to actually drive it. <laughs> um, but I want to move on to what's coming up this afternoon on the conference agenda yes. because we've got uh, Suella Braverman doing a major keynote speech uh, and bringing up the subject of multiculturalism and whether it has and hasn't failed. And this feeds right into this kind of interesting dynamic that's bubbling up here between several very powerful conservative women, all positioning for the Tory leadership uh, if and when uh, that vacancy arises. And you know, front pages today, you've got Kemi Badenoch, very favoured younger candidate, potential future leader candidate, 
saying that this country is the best country in which to be black. Uh, that's a headline. On the other hand, you've got Suella Braverman saying multiculturalism has failed, it's a disaster. I uh, understand she's going to be talking about communities that simply do not bother to integrate. And you know, we do pander to those sections of society by offering translation services, for example, in the NHS where patients are routinely offered a choice of 20 plus languages in which to conduct consultations that we all know are very difficult to secure with medical professionals. So that kind of thing, opening real questions over the extent to which we as a society are making it too easy uh, for different communities to be ghettoized and that's not healthy. That's a point I think she's going to be trying to make uh, this afternoon. But really opening up a dividing line, I think, with some of her other um, rivals for a, a future potential mm. leadership race. And bear in mind, we've probably got a whole year of this. Um, you know, we don't have to have an election until next October. Um, so, you know, these people are strutting their stuff a good 12 months in advance. Uh, and we've still got all the other policy stuff to come out. So we're heading up to what could be a, a very exciting period yeah. very turbulent period in British politics. Because two of the biggest issues around today are obviously the migrants. You would imagine Suella Braverman will, will touch upon that this afternoon. But the other big one, which I spoke about this morning, is this idea that we live in a kind of lawless society now where violent crime is very much the norm. I witnessed a, 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 a fight between a shoplifter and some security guards yesterday at my local shopping centre. You know, we had yet another stabbing of a 16-year-old stabbed to death outside a home in North London didn't really even make the papers because it's become, you know, so run-of-the-mill to see another teenager stabbed to death in London. And, I mean, crime is a massive problem for people up and down the country. They want to feel safe on their own streets. And at some point, the Tories are going to have to address that as well, aren't they? Well, I wish they'd addressed it, as do many Conservative supporters. I wish they'd spent the whole of their administration addressing that rather than letting it run out of control mm. and you're absolutely right you know actually for the first time in my life I'm beginning to feel distinctly uneasy on some of the nicer streets of Britain yes I'm here in Manchester I've been coming here for party conferences and um, for the best part of 15 20 years um, and I think I've never seen it look quite so downtrodden mm. um, you know there are an awful lot of homeless people around this despite the fact that the mayor here Andy Burnham has made addressing rough sleeping one of his absolute centrepiece policies. Um, you've got a lot of people wandering around looking like they're on drugs, a lot of beggars. Uh, frankly, it is not a, um, a particularly comfortable place always to be. Uh, and, you know, it's a great city. I love Manchester. But I think that what's happening on the streets here is rather symbolic of a broader decline uh, in deprived urban areas. Yeah. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And you see it everywhere you go. And that's the, the tragedy. I mean, um, fascinating times. But Isabel, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakeshott there uh, checking in with us from Tory party conference, where, as you heard, uh, Suella Braverman will be speaking this afternoon. You'll hear that live as it happens, of course, right here on Talk TV, uh, when she addresses multiculturalism and why she thinks it hasn't worked. Right now, it's time for this. The world of work.
Now, the world of woke is often a place where we come to find out what on earth has been going on in some organisation or other which has decided to go a bit woke and to do something rather daft and to waste an awful lot of money. But today, actually, I'm going to say that something that's been done in the NHS is actually good. Now, I know this will come as a shock to many of you because I very rarely say anything good about the NHS, but they've actually come up with an idea which might work. Incredibly. And no, it's nothing to do with reducing waiting times. It's nothing at all to do with um, making you get to the front of the queue or see a doctor quicker or manage to get a dentist. It's none of that stuff. But what it actually is, is that they're giving an opportunity to those tired doctors and maybe even some nurses to have a bit of a kip. That's right. They're spending quite a lot of money in Royal Wolverhampton Hospital, £17,000. I mean, it's not much by their standards. I mean, they've got a budget of about £200 billion, right? So to spend 17000 is actually probably quite a good idea. But they're basically going to put in sleeping pods so that people can have a nap if they're feeling a bit tired. Because the last thing you want in a hospital is a tired doctor. You know, people always say, if you're going in for an operation, make sure you get it in the morning rather than in the afternoon. Because in the morning, the doctor's fresh. He might have a hangover, but at least he knows what he's doing. By the time you get to sort of four o'clock in the afternoon, he's done maybe five or six operations. He might not be firing on all cylinders. So they've decided that it's a good idea to put in some sleep pods. So it's not just happening there. Um, there's a, another dozen hospitals in England who are actually going to do it. And so finally, I mean, it takes a long time sometimes to find it. But they finally found something that I think is a good idea. So the world of woke NHS is actually on the way up. Who'd have thought it? That was, of course, um, the world of woke. Because in the end, it's absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely incredible. And that was the world of woke. The world of woke. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 